the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This podcast is brought to you by Tribe South Africa, your gateway to the JC and global markets. Providing an in-depth online trading experience, Tribe exists to empower progression. You can simply and securely trade and invest in JC and US stocks, as well as leveraged products, or invest in tax-free savings accounts. Visit tribe.co.za to find out more or follow them on social media at tribe underscore SA. Welcome to episode 120 of Magic Markets. This is just after the sort of Easter long weekend in South Africa, so it's been a good one. And I'm excited to welcome our guest today. We're going to get some really cool insights into the banking industry and ways to think about those stocks. But before we welcome Alex to the show, Mo, hello from Canada. I hope you are doing well and enjoying Ramadan as best you can. Yeah, Ghost, always a pleasure doing this. And uh, about halfway through Ramadan, as, we, as we're speaking right now, on the plus side, at least the, the weather's starting to look up on this side of the world. So I no longer have to look out at uh, lots of frozen ice and snow. Uh, we're starting to see some spring blooms. So that's some good news. But uh, what's better news is that Alex Weiss from Tribe is joining us today to have a very exciting discussion. Alex, welcome to Magic Markets. Firstly, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honor to be part of the show. And I look forward to providing hopefully some good insights into the banking industry, specifically in South Africa, and also some insights into the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. But yeah, very excited to get started. And again, thank you so much. Yeah, Alex, I've been reading some of the stuff you've been putting out, and some of it's gone into ghost mail. He's a talented guy. And I think before we even get into this, you know, just just kudos for, to you. I mean, you you pretty much not quite straight out of varsity, you know, because obviously there's some experience here that's important. But you know, you're really early in your career. When I was at that stage, I was fetching coffee for Mo. Um, <laughs> speaking of coffee, Mo's actually done a great job of not being grumpy this Ramadan. I think that sort of coffee training you went on before the time really helped Mo. But kudos to you, Alex. I think what you're doing at your age is very impressive, and I think it's going to come through quite clearly on this podcast. I'm excited to chat to you and maybe. I know you want to chat a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, that story has been in the news now for a few weeks, so this is not breaking by any stretch, but sometimes it's good to also just spend a few minutes just helping people understand what happened. I think lots of people assume they know what's going on, and then they listen to another viewpoint on it, and they go, oh, okay, pennies drop now. So I think let's start there, and it sets the scene for some of the local banking stuff that we're going to talk about today. You know, obviously, with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, as you guys know, and I'm sure as many of the listeners here know as well, That marked the second largest bank failure of a financial institution in American history and the largest after Washington Mutual in 2008 amidst the global financial meltdown back then. But what I found really interesting about the collapse and the demise of Silicon Valley Bank was that it was specifically fueled not so much from a fundamental aspect, but from a behavioral finance or cognitive aspect as well. And that then was 
fueled additionally by social media. Had this event happened in the past where social media isn't as present um, as it is today, perhaps there wouldn't have been such a quick bank run on Silicon Valley Bank. But I mean, basically just going into it, what I can say is the rising rate environment throughout 2022, where we saw the Federal Reserve increased interest rates throughout most of 2022, that did no favors for technology-oriented investors at all. I mean, 2022 at the end of the day marked the third worst year for technology after 2008 and the bursting of the dot-com bubble in 2000. So what happened is with Silicon Valley Bank and the type of client base that they had predominantly technology startups, those tech startups actually saw their venture capital funding deteriorate and naturally resorted to drawing on their deposits. Now, to satisfy client withdrawal requests, Silicon Valley Bank announced that it was to sell $21 billion worth of securities, specifically bonds, at a tremendous $1.8 billion loss. Now, that in itself was very interesting to me, purely and simply because bonds, specifically government bonds, are deemed risk-free investments. However, not if you dispose or sell those bonds prior to maturity and specifically if there is significant fluctuation in market-related interest rates during that period leading up to the maturity date. So what we saw is the Federal Reserve was increasing interest rates tremendously throughout 2022 and Silicon Valley Bank saw their deposits slowing down. The value of their investments or holdings in the government-backed bonds started deteriorating and they were actually then forced to sell bonds at a tremendous $1.8 billion loss. Now, what that did is that sparked anxiety, panic and mania amongst market participants. And there's a concept referred to in behavioral finance known as herd mentality. We are by nature emotional creatures and we tend to react emotionally and subjectively to conditions around us. So social media really fueled this bank run on Silicon Valley Bank at the end of the day. I mean, some financiers have even considered the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank the first Twitter-fueled bank run. And that's exactly what happened. Silicon Valley Bank announced that they had incurred this massive loss in their investment holdings relating to their fixed income securities. Had they not announced that, maybe the bank run wouldn't have happened so quickly. Um, but they did announce it. And venture capitalists went on Twitter and probed their companies to withdraw their funds. And then that just led to a snowball effect. And at the end of the day, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And a whole lot of venture capitalists the next few days trying to save the situation. And I remember that on Twitter, Mo, you probably saw that as well. Guys going bananas to say, what's going on with regional banks? The Fed needs to step in, the regulators, etc., etc." I mean, it was an absolute bloodbath. No, most definitely, most definitely. It was a bloodbath. And I think what was specifically evident in the United States was we saw the likes of JP Morgan and Chase, Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, all of their stock prices um, were significantly down in the days following the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, more so than in South Africa. South African banks actually held quite well uh, amidst the financial meltdown, 
but it just shows how we really do sometimes react emotionally and sometimes we have to go and look beyond the fundamental financials and start studying behavioral finance and that's a topic that i'm very interested in actually um you know that's a discussion for another day entirely but i think behavioral finance is definitely making its way as an important pillar in financial analysis and a big part of what went wrong with silicon valley bank was risk management right so they went and bought a whole lot of uh, and as you so correctly point out there's a difference between a risk-free rate which is basically you know the u.s government paying you a return and a risk-free instrument which is the instrument that gives you that return to your point it's only risk-free technically if you hold it to maturity if you sell it at any point along the way the market rate is going to depend on what the prevailing interest rate is and the reason for that is relatively straightforward if you own a bond that is paying you a return of two percent in the pandemic for example that bond was a great little investment because there really wasn't any yield to be found anywhere but today it's not a great yield. And so you would have to sell that bond at a discount to its face value. And that's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. And I think to South African banks' credit, you know, if you'll excuse the pun, they are really good at risk management. They generally speaking do not take silly risks. I mean, there are a lot of questions raised around the way Silicon Valley Bank managed its balance sheet, why they took shareholder funds, why you take short dated deposits and go and buy long dated instruments. So there's concepts like asset and liability matching and managing those interest rate ladders. And it just doesn't work to do something like that. It is super, super high risk. It's exactly the same reason why life insurance companies tend to look for long dated investments because they have a reasonable idea of their mortality curve and when they might need to actually pay out and they go and invest the funds in the meantime to try and maximize returns. So that's where Silicon Valley Bank got it wrong. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, behavioral finance, I think, has its place in all industries and you know as you mentioned the fed is in a particularly sticky state right now with regards to what it has to do in order to fight inflation does the fed pause rate hikes and i mean the recent collapse of silicon valley bank silvergate bank for example and the banking turmoil in the united states in general has definitely strengthened the case for rate caution so in terms of that, we could be expecting a potential rate pause by the Federal Reserve. But then again, the Federal Reserve has come out and Jerome Powell has said time and time again that the sole mandate of the Federal Reserve Bank in the States is to normalize price levels and bring inflation down to that much desired 2% target rate. So it is a bit of a catch-22. You know, Does the Fed, for example, increase interest rates at the risk of a potential recession and a hard landing or do they take a step back and perhaps let the recent rate hikes that the Fed has increased interest rates by in the past few months filter through and for example have the correct effects on the rest of the market. Um, inflation as we all know is a very sticky concept so it does take time for interest rate and monetary policy changes to come through and have the desired effects on, on inflation. So it is a very interesting time, I think, for all market participants going forward. I was speaking to someone over lunch today and they used the analogy, it's like a, a big bath of water. And if you tilt it and you start shaking it, the water takes a long time to stop sloshing. And that's basically <laughs> exactly what's going on now. And the problem is an interest rate hike is not an instant fix. So everyone's managing this based on monthly data, quarterly data. And now we're seeing what happens when, you know, everyone tried to catch up to the supply chain problems. Now they're all sitting way overstocked. I think Levi's released results last week and the share price took an absolute 
hammering because they're yes. sitting with too much stock. So much like supply chains, you know, people react to try and, and, and get ahead of the curve and supply chains have been a huge issue. Now they've got too much inventory. Now they have to mark it down and sell it through and they've hurt their business anyway. And obviously this stuff is incredibly easy to talk about and incredibly hard to do and incredibly hard to actually manage these things in practice. But it's the same with the Fed. It's the same with interest rates. And ironically, I think the South African market is a little bit steadier. I mean, for example, we are used to inflation. We are used to relatively high interest rates, right? I mean, this is, in America, there are people who have never seen stuff like this before. Whereas here, it's like, okay, inflation. You know, we've seen this movie, <laughs> high interest rates. Yeah, we know what to do now. I think South Africa knows this this market, right? And I guess that filters through into maybe our banks as well, because Alex, I think you'd probably agree they, they're a little bit more in the way of commercial banks here in a traditional banking sense, rather than more merchant banks and investment banks. Yes, we have investment banking in South Africa. Of course we do. But in the US, there are huge banks that are built around vibrant public equity markets. So something like Goldman Sachs always comes to mind. You know, JP Morgan has a big equities business. And when it has a good year, it does exceptionally well. And when it has a bad year, it does horribly. Locally, uh, the banks behave more like banks, don't they? You know, South African banks are notorious for being fairly robust and stable. Um, and, you know, something that when I was doing the research for this podcast and for an article that we are busy preparing at Trive currently, in South Africa, if we go back to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic onset in March of 2020, you know, interest rates in the U.S. were at near zero levels. So when Silicon Valley Bank had invested so many of their clients' deposits and proceeds into bonds, the decline in the value of those bonds was magnified by the fact that the base of which the Fed started increasing interest rates come, came from a near zero level. In South Africa, interest rates were not at a near zero level. So the magnitude and the extent to which, for example, FNB, well, First Rand, Nedbank, Standard Bank, APSA, saw their investments in fixed income securities deteriorate wasn't as extreme as the likes of Silvergate Bank or Silicon Valley Bank, who had, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think Silicon Valley Bank had approximately 57% of its assets in bonds, whether held to maturity bonds or available for sale bonds. Now, I'm not saying that South African banks have that level of deposits or proceeds in bonds, but we haven't, our banks haven't seen such a tremendous decline in the value of those investments because the South African Reserve Bank didn't have to increase interest rates from a near zero rate to where they are now. It came from a higher base at the end of the day, hence why certain banks um, in South Africa haven't seen their investments deteriorate as much. I think, Alex, before we even jump into the, the story around the South African and the local banks, I, I find the thesis on behavioral finance so fascinating. Because if you cast your mind back, you know, just I think it was like 10, 15 years ago, we had the Arab Spring and the role that social media played in societal dislocations like that. And now to see that spill over into financial markets, I think it's, it's quite relevant. Uh, I think it's also something that regulators and companies need to be very aware of. So I, I, I want to thank you for highlighting that. You know, the, the other thing I just think with the global banks, before we come into the South African banks, and maybe this is a nice way to compare the two, is now more recently we're seeing concerns around commercial real estate. You know, at the end of the day, we've got the next Fed meeting in May. It's coming up. Uh, they're going to have to be hard pressed to say, do we continue hiking on this path 
without creating a financial stability risk. And I think the exposures to the US banks, certainly the Canadian banks, to the real estate sector, commercial real estate in particular, is quite significant simply because how the mortgage market works here is that as they come up to reset dates or refinance dates, that's when you really start to see the pressure hit and come through. And I think that's contributing to a lot of the negativity, the bearishness that you're seeing coming out. I mean, Jamie Dimon's written his kind of annual bearish letter to the world quite recently as well. And we should start seeing those US banking results come through from the start of this week. So maybe we can use that as a contrasting point between the global banks and then what the situation looks like in the South African market. When market participants elect to invest in local banking shares, they need to understand that you are investing in significantly more stable, more robust, more risk-averse shares at the end of the day relative to, for example, your American banking shares such as JP Morgan and Chase that are and they do display a lot more volatility. And, you know, this goes back to investing 101 where risk and return go hand in hand. At the end of the day, you know, South African banks are notorious and famous for having very impressive capital adequacy ratios. You know, if I'm not mistaken, I think that our common equity tier one capital ratio on average across South African banks has averaged around 15% relative to 11% average for the top 15 US banks. Um, and, you know, just taking that one single metric into into consideration, our capital adequacy is a lot higher. South African banks are a lot more stable. The outlook is a lot more stable for South African banks. So a lot of it comes down, again, to behavioral finance. Investors invest in South African banks for the longer term. And perhaps, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of this, but perhaps market participants in America, for example, will tend to trade more so with banking shares and try and capitalize off short-term price fluctuations, more so than with South African banks. Look, I think the guys will trade local banks. What I will tell you is that the South African banks are also a function of their environment, right? It's systemic risks, and they are so dependent on South African economic growth, and we know what that looks like, that if they then take crazy risks on top of that, plus have to deal with load shedding, potentially political turmoil from time to time, all the other joys that we have in South Africa, it just becomes really difficult. Whereas I think in the US, the bankers just feel like they can be cowboys a little bit more. I really do believe that. You know, they're sitting in the, the best economy in the West, literally, and arguably the best economy in the world, and the risk-reward works for them. You know, they can actually throw the dice, and if they get it right, they make big money, like a Goldman Sachs. And the argument there for investors is always that when the times are good, they have to share the you know the value with the bankers who get paid these eye-watering bonuses. And when times are bad, the bankers get paid retention bonuses, and there's no dividends for shareholders. <laughs> it's criticism that is valid. A lot of those banks are very much run for the insiders, whereas the local banks are not like that. You know, they've got lots of institutional investors, and the, and the way to check this is going to the financials of the local banks and see how much of their income is coming from global markets, for example, how much of it is investment banking. The stuff is there, it gets disclosed, and you'll see that it's actually a relatively small portion of the bank versus just lending to South Africans, literally borrowing at one rate, lending out at another, making a margin in the middle. I mean, that is traditional 
banking at its finest. That's the environment that Mo and I both come out of. And, you know, not necessarily the lending, but banking in general. So we've kind of seen this on the inside. And yeah, it's a stark, stark difference to the global counterparts. You are correct. No, most definitely. And I think the last point I will raise on that note is South African banks, most of them have a much broader and a much wider client base than, for example, the likes of Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, I've mentioned this before. Silicon Valley Bank was catering predominantly technology startup and venture capitalists in the technology industry and in the healthcare industry. So they had a very, very concentrated client base and their clients were also massive depositors and a few of them. South African banks, you know, the client base ranges from retail to institutional and the deposit range is massive so should there be a social media rampage to withdraw money out of local banks it's not coming from one specific group of individuals Um, local banks have for example retail clients institutional clients across a wide array of different deposit sizes so the concentration risk isn't as significant within the local banking sector relative to the international specifically the american banking sector yeah i want to I touch on that because it's i mean when i left banking in south africa that's probably what about six or seven years ago now um you know if you look at the share price performance over that time period they've pretty much gone sideways you know a lot of them are pretty much on the same level they were back then Uh, And I'm not taking away from the point that South African banks are remarkably well run, they're well capitalized, the regulator is strong down in South Africa, but that somehow hasn't necessarily translated into the same kind of return for shareholders. If I compare South African banks to, for example, the returns you will have seen on a JP Morgan, on a city, for example, yes, they've taken more risk, but they've also generated that return for their shareholders. And again, when you go to the kind of segment of the market that's maybe too big to fail, again, talking the larger banks, not Silicon Valley, maybe a JP Morgan and so forth, those risks seem to be managed reasonably okay. Uh, Also, I guess the dynamic in South Africa is really quite different. I remember when we were back in the global financial crisis, you know, South Africa was not exposed, as you indicated, to the whole subprime crisis because of the type of behavior of South African banks. So how do we reconcile the performance with the shares in the South African market versus some of their global counterparts versus, I guess, just the way they've been run? You know, maybe it does make sense. Maybe that risk aversion is why the stock hasn't shot the lights out. No, definitely. I completely agree with you on that. And, you know, one very quick point I'll also raise on that is I think, you know, in in general, when a small South African bank collapses, it doesn't make international headlines like that in, in America, in the United States, for example. So in terms of social media fueling a bank run on a specific local bank, the chances are a lot are a lot higher in america for example than they are in south africa because like i just said if a small local bank does collapse it doesn't make international headlines like for example silicon valley bank and by no means was silicon valley bank a small bank but it definitely wasn't a top 10 bank i think if i'm not mistaken i think it was the 16th largest bank in in the states So Alex, I'm going to flick it back to, I suppose, from an investing perspective, how we think about the way to value banks. We do have a few minutes left. And when you look at opportunities in this space, when you chat to clients, you know, how do you play one bank against another? What are some of the metrics that you look at? And then I think Mo and I can probably share some of the stuff we look at. And I think that'll give people a good idea of just how to understand a little bit about this sector. 100%. So, I mean, I will kick off with the 
two standout metrics that we look at very generic the price to earnings ratio and your price to book ratio you know just in a nutshell for those who don't know obviously the price to earnings ratio compares a bank stock price to its earnings per share figure and that helps investors understand exactly how much they are paying for each dollar of earnings generated by the bank at the end of the day now a higher price to earnings ratio or pe ratio may indicate that the bank is expected to have higher future earnings growth while a lower pe ratio may suggest lower growth prospects or potentially undervaluation so i mean if we look at for example the big five banks in south africa nedbank standard bank apsa first rand and capitec on a trailing 12 month price to earnings ratio valuation basis nedbank standard bank and apsa their pe ratios are fairly similar first ran slightly higher at a multiple of 10 and the standout is definitely capitec with a multiple of just under 22 approximately 21.9 pe ratio so what that tells us is that either capitec is very overvalued in the marketplace with respect to its share price relative to its earnings or the market is pricing in significant growth potential. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but to my best understanding, when trying to differentiate between whether a high PE ratio is indicative of a growth opportunity or indicative of overvaluation, it's just always beneficial to be mindful of a concept referred to as a growth trap. And that's obviously where a high PE ratio possibly is indicative of high growth potential. However, the market is actually mispricing that. And there could be mismanagement, there could be, you know, a lack in fundamental support within the financials, for example. So it's always beneficial to keep in mind the potential of a growth trap when looking at high PE ratios. Okay, so spot on about the price earnings ratio and you're wise beyond your years to say growth trap. I'm very proud of you because value trap is the one that comes up all the time where people say, oh, you know, be careful of cheap things. You're actually saying being careful of expensive things, which is good because you kind of come from a generation where people have been happy to pay these huge multiples and maybe that's maybe that's showing. So that's quite exciting. So I'll, you know, you've, you've mentioned price to book there. I'll just give some insight into that. So the reason you use price to book in banking is because the assets and the liabilities of a bank are basically fair valued. So for example, in an industrials company that's had machinery in the factory for 50 years, the book is no indication of what that business is actually worth to go and replace right now. Some of that stuff, there's loads of machines in there that are fully depreciated, busy churning out stuff every day. It's just not a good indication. But banking, they've got to carry their assets and liabilities pretty much at fair value. So the difference between the two is equity. So technically speaking, the equity of a bank is at fair value in theory. Now, the thing is the bank is sitting on your equity. What is the bank doing with that equity? Well, to figure that out, we need to go and look at return on equity to see what they are actually doing. And this is why banks tend to trade at either a premium or a discount to book value. So it's not necessarily in the case that a book value more than one is expensive and a book value less than one means you should be buying the thing. The correct thing to do is to look at something called effective return on equity. So what you do is you look at the return on equity and then you look at what you are actually paying for it. So if the return on equity is 15, it means for every 100 rands worth of equity, they are generating a return of 15, fine. If it's trading at a price to book of one, 
your effective return on equity is 15% because you've paid 100, you get 15. But if it's trading on a price to book of two, your effective return on equity is only 7.5% because you've paid 200, you're getting back 15. So it all depends on what your required rate of return is versus what the bank is actually generating as return on equity. And then you look at the two together and that gives you an idea of price to book. And that is why, for example, first round trades at a significantly higher price to book versus the sort of Ned Bank, ABSA, Standard Bank trio. And then, you know, I know you weren't too committal on Capitec. I don't mind giving my view, which is that it is still heavily overvalued. I mean, I really do think so. And the share price over the past year and a half has kind of shown that it's starting to run out of puff as a share price. You know, Capitec's efficiency ratios are going up. It's, they've kind of had this incredible run of winning market share, but eventually it gets harder and harder and harder and harder. And then they're not in a fast growing country. So how long can they take market share for? There's a practical limit on how many people are willing to bank with a specific bank versus others. I mean, Mo, we looked at that in Magic Markets Premium literally last week. We covered a business called Alta Beauty. And, you know, you can't just assume that it'll win market share for the rest of time. There is a practical limit. If you look at any market in the world, unless it is a government-regulated monopoly, there's, pretty, there's never one company. <laughs> there's always a whole bunch of them. Yeah, I mean, Ghost, uh, it's, it's always fascinating. I mean, just on Capitec, you know, that's a stock that I had notoriously gotten wrong for the longest time ever. You know, I thought it was expensive and then it got more expensive and then thought it was expensive and it got even more expensive. So at some point in time, yes, I think, you know, Alex raises that very valid point around a growth trap. A lot of people talk about a value trap. As you've indicated, you know, those are very valuable insights. So I would say price to earnings, price to book are your go-to standard generic valuation metrics. Then specifically with the banking industry, we also look at the credit loss ratio. Now, the credit loss ratio is just calculated as a ratio of credit losses, such as loan defaults, write-offs, bad debts, to the amount of credits extended, um, for example, loans issued. Now, the credit ratio is important for two main reasons. Um, the first one is risk assessment. So the credit loss ratio provides insight into the level of credit risk in a financial institution, for example, where a high credit loss ratio indicates a higher likelihood of defaults and write-offs and vice versa. The second reason why the credit loss ratio is so important for analysts analyzing banking shares, for example, is capital adequacy. Now, the credit loss ratio is actually used by financial institutions to assess the adequacy of their capital reserves at the end of the day. So higher credit loss ratios may require higher capital reserves in order to absorb potential adverse effects in the economy whereas lower credit loss ratios could potentially indicate that less capital is required to cover potential adverse economic shocks. And yeah, I mean, that's everything in a nutshell, really. You've touched very correctly on price earnings ratio. You've spoken about credit loss ratio. I've rambled a bit there about price to book, but it's an important technical concept. And I fear that we are now out of time. Well done, Alex. It's lovely to see the young talent coming through at Trive. And for those who want to go and find out more about Trive, visit trive.co.za. You can find them on social media. The handle's usually trive underscore SA. They have a very cool website. There's a lot of very cool people involved there. Go check it out if you're looking for something to help take your investing and trading, I think, to that next level of execution and research and everything that goes with it. And Alex, I look forward to more of your articles in Ghost Mail, as I'm sure I will see them coming through soon. Most definitely. Thank you so much for having me. And it was an absolute pleasure providing some insight and 
yeah, thank you again. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.